the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Ongozine Brief, brought to you from the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, held December 9th through 12th, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia, we sat down with Dr. Anna Sureda, head of the hematology department at the Catalan Institute of Oncology, Barcelona, Spain, to discuss some of the exciting developments in the treatment of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and multiple myeloma. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogene Brief. According to the Lymphoma Coalition, a global network of worldwide non-for-profit lymphoma patient organizations, over 62,000 people worldwide are diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma each year, and approximately 25,000 people die each year from this cancer, representing a major unmet medical need. During our interview, we asked Dr. Sireda about the exciting treatment options presented here in Atlanta, as well as the differences of how patients are being treated in, for example, the United States and Spain. And we asked Dr. Sireda about a particular study, the Echelon 1, about the reason for the study, the study outcomes, and what the results of the study mean for patients with advanced frontline Hodgkin lymphoma. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Sireda. We're here at the 59th Annual ASH meeting, and we're joined by Dr. Anna Sereda, Head of Hematology Department of the Catalan Institute of Oncology. Dr. Sereda, can you first tell us about the Catalan Institute of Oncology and your role there? Um, well, I'm the head of the hematology department at the Catalan Institute of Oncology for the last two years and a half. The Catalan Institute of Oncology is a public institution in Catalonia. It's not a hospital itself, but it basic, it's basically the umbrella for four different hematology and oncology departments at different hospitals in Barcelona. And it was basically created uh, quite a long time ago, I guess 20 years or something like that, as a monographic institute of cancer. So in my institution... Uh, we only have clinical hematology, medical oncology, radiotherapy, palliative care, and of course we are associated to a university general hospital, one of the biggest hospitals in, in Barcelona. Now, what are some of the drugs in the pipeline here at ASH that you are most excited about this year? Uh, well, I think that uh, not only for us this year, but I think that we are assisting to a uh, a uh, significant change in the way that we are treating our patients with hematological uh, malignancies. So we are moving from an area where chemotherapy was basically the uh, uh, the backbone of all the treatments that we were given to an area where um, what we can call targeted therapy uh, it's somewhat replacing uh, chemotherapy or at least it's being combined with uh, with chemotherapy. Okay, and there's a lot of exciting presentations about brentuximab vedotin this year. So data was presented today from the Phase 3 Eklon trial, and this focuses on frontline advanced Hodgkin lymphoma. Can you tell us what the study me measures were and what the outcomes were? Yeah, I think that, um, well, the, this trial was basically looking, as you have said, to advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma first-line therapy. Uh, the objective of the trial was to challenge the standard of care, which is ABBD, 
So a combination of four different drugs that we have been using for many, many years uh, to treat patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And ABBD was challenged with a new combination that it's constituted by uh, brentuximab bedotin and ABD. So Can a- you tell us what, what ABD means? Sure. Uh, so A is for adriamycin, B for blasting, and D for dacarbacin. The standard ABBD has these three drugs together with bleomycin. So in the experimental arm, we are substituting bleomycin, which is probably the less effective drug in the ABBD combination and has some well-known toxicities, basically pulmonary toxicity by brentuximabedotin, uh, which is what we can uh, call targeted therapy. Uh, so that was the experimental arm. Patients received either six cycles of the standard arm or six, six cycles of the new combination. The end point of the study is what we call modified PFS, um, evaluated by the independent review facility, and the trial was positive. So there was a significant difference in terms of uh, in MPFS between the experimental arm in front of the standard arm with an excess of 5%. When you say MPS, um, oh, MPFS, modified progression-free survival, how is this different from progression-free survival? Um, okay, so basically what uh, we have been using for many years as one of the endpoints of prospective clinical trials uh, is what we call progression-free survival, which is basically looking at patients dying or having disease relapse or disease progression. In the MPFS, it's a little bit more strict terminology, and that was uh, one endpoint that was initially decided by, of course, the, the sponsor of the trial, by the regula- uh, regulatory authorities, and, of course, by the investigators participating in the trial because it, not, it does not only consider progression or relapse or death, but it also considers additional treatment after first-line therapy in those patients that have active disease at the end of treatment. So, it's a little bit more a strict way to evaluate um, the potential benefit of the experimental arm in front of the standard arm. I see. So how do the results from the study ultimately benefit the patient? So, I mean, the study is, is positive because there is a benefit in terms of this MPFS that has been evaluated at two years. Uh, the benefit is being seen not only by the independent review facility that was the primary endpoint, but also by the investigator. And even this difference is a little bit higher when evaluated by the investigator. Um, and of course, uh, this represents a clinical benefit for the patients included in, in the trial. So there is um, 33% of the patients less in the experimental arm receiving additional therapies, what we call salvage treatments or second-line treatments, and autologous stem cell transplantation, and a little bit more than 20% of the patients, um, let's say, progressing or relapsing or having to receive additional treatment. Now... Uh, we're talking about brentuximafidotin. Yeah. It's uh, a drug that uh, is now approved in uh, North America and mo- most countries around the world in, t- for the treatment of certain uh, diseases. When you look at, at uh, the drug, brentuximafidotin, 
What are your expectations in terms of additional uh, treatment options that may come out with the, for the treatment of, with this drug? Um, if we talk about Hodgkin's lymphoma, that, of course, we know that brontuximab bedotin has indications in other type of lymphomas, uh, basically in anaplastic large cell lymphoma and nowadays in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, but probably Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's uh, the... Uh, the well-known disease for being uh, CD30 positive. And I have dedicated many years of my life to treat patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It is the first time in our life that patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma can benefit from something different from conventional chemotherapy, more or less intensive chemotherapy. But until brentuximab was used in this disease and it was approved uh, some years ago, Patients with Hodgkin lymphoma were treated only with chemotherapy-based strategies. Uh, Hodgkin lymphoma is a highly curable hematological malignancy, but in spite of all the changes with chemotherapy, uh, there is still a significant proportion of patients that don't do well, that are primary refractory, they relapse, and brentuximab bedotin offered the possibility to treat the disease in a completely different way, basically with really a very interesting and intelligent mechanism. So giving uh, the possibility to, um, so basically combining a monoclonal antibody which links to the CD30 antigen, which is in the surface of the neoplastic cell. And this monoclonal antibody has linked a very potent anti-tubulin agent, which is monomethyloristatin A, MMA, uh, that basically what does is disrupts the microtubule network inside the cell and basically produces cell death, what we call apoptosis. So when you look at that mechanism, and it's, that's, that's a mechanism which, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, um, allows to give a very highly potent drug, which you uh, refer to, um, which you cannot give systemically to a patient, um, but it allows it to be used in, in a very targeted way. Yeah. Let me correct you one thing. I mean, you give uh, the um, uh, brentuximab bedotin is given intravenously. So, in fact, you give it, uh, let's say, in this uh, from this point of view, systemically to the patient. But the issue is that this CD30 antigen is basically expressed by the neoplastic cells. So, the drug basically goes into the neoplastic cells and this is why it's so highly effective and has a good safety and toxicity profile because normal cells, let's put it this way, don't express the CD30 antigen. So basically when the complex circulates in the blood, uh, is not toxic because monomethylauristatin E, which is the toxic part of the molecule, is linked. Only once the antigen links uh, or the antibody, sorry, links to the antigen in the neoplastic cell, then monomethylauristatin uh, E is internalized in the cell cytoplasm, and there is where it basically has its action. So when you when you look at, at ADCs, antibody drug conjugates, I mean, which you refer to, um, they are a novel way of, of treatment. I mean, I think uh, brentuximab-fedotin was one of the first kind of ADCs that were commercially approved uh, in North America as well as the rest of the world. 
Um, how does that, I mean, you, you refer to a little bit to um, in, in, in the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma, but overall, how does that solve an unmet need or how does that, how has it changed the, um, the opportunities that we have uh, in, in treatment uh, of, of these patients? Yeah. Uh, I think that if we go from Hodgkin lymphoma, that in fact represents not a very frequent lymphoma subtype, but if we go to the rest of hematological malignancies, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, acute leukemias, chronic leukemias, we have been assisting in the last few years. And of course, the ASH meeting this year is a perfect example of that, of a shift uh, from chemotherapy to targeted therapy. This allows treatment of hematological malignancies um, um, in a, com a completely uh, different way of treating these, uh, these malignancies. And uh, basically, um, this targeted therapy is looking at specific molecular pathways which are not being addressed by conventional chemotherapy. This is why these drugs on its own, or these drugs alone are eventually combined with chemotherapy, significantly increase the possibility for a patient to get a complete remission or an overall response and potentially having an impact in progression-free survival because we are um, fighting against uh, hematological malignancies not only with chemotherapy, which is uh, quite not... Uh, I mean, it has quite a lot of additional toxicities, but with uh, more molecular-driven drugs. So when you look at molecularly-driven drugs, in this case, uh, one thing that comes to mind is diagnostics. And so one of the, the things that you, what we see in, in diagnostics is a, st a stronger collaboration with pharmaceutical companies, with research institutes. How important is it that... Um, in your opinion, that uh, a diagnostic company uh, and a pharma company and maybe a research institute like yours are actually collaborating uh, together to make sure um, that a therapy that's being out there, like uh, brentuximafidotin or other therapies, are really kind of um, being used for the right patients? I think it's of really of capital importance because it's not only using new drugs or having new drugs into the market and knowing how to use them, the type of population and the side effects. But the possibility to have new drugs into the market leads to a better diagnosis of the patient and to eventually subdivide some histological subtypes. For instance, when we talk about lymphoma, depending on the cell origin and depending on molecular features. And unfortunately... This is one thing that um, I'm not so sure in U.S., but coming from Europe, that maybe the reality is a little bit different, but maybe we can share some common issues here. Uh, some of these um, additional diagnostic techniques that nowadays we need to better use these targeted therapy drugs and to go to what we can discuss later on, which is personalized medicine, So all these diagnostic issues need to be implemented. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, academic institutions don't have the resources and the possibilities to do that. And this is why I think that collaboration between partners that have, in this sense, the same goal, 
which basically it's improve the outcome and the treatment of the patients. I mean, they should collaborate and to make it happen. It doesn't make any sense to have these new drugs and not being able to address the new drug for the specific patient that would benefit most. Right. So in, in line of that, I mean, you, you mentioned personalized medicine. Um, often when we talk about personalized medicine, we, and we, we refer to also about targeted therapy, so we refer to precision medicine. There are a lot of buzzwords out there that actually refer to something that may be perceived by the common, um, the public in general, put it that way, people that may not have a medical background, as, well, that's the same or I don't understand the difference. From your perspective, if you look at personalized medicine, if you look at targeted therapies, if you look at precision medicine, um, how are you um, using those terms? Are you using them in combination or what are the differences in in the different meanings of those uh, words? Um, Basically, I would say that uh, they are different ways probably of looking at the same thing and having the same scope. So the objective of oncohematology nowadays and of course of medical oncology is to be able to deliver to a given patient the most appropriate treatment in terms of efficacy and side effects. So ideally we should be able to give every single patient depending on the molecular profile of the neoplasia the patient has the most effective treatment with less side effects. And this is what all this terminology that you have been alluding to, at least from my point of view, um, means. So that's the ultimate meaning. So again, if you... um, I mean, you're from Spain. Yeah. Beautiful country. Um, How, if you look at, for example, the United States or look at different countries in Europe... How does uh, healthcare, um, how does the treatment of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma in this case or other um, uh, oncological uh, and hematological malignancies, how is that treatment different or equal to what we see in other countries? Uh, Well, I think that there are clear differences probably between US and, and Europe. And if we talk about Spain, in Spain, the healthcare system is 100% public. So every single patient that has a social security number, let's put it this way, even if this person is Spanish or it's not Spanish, is allowed to receive the best standard of care as, uh, of course, always taking into consideration that the drug is approved and reimbursed by the Spanish system. So when we think a little bit about the process of having a specific drug or new treatment approved, FDA is one thing. Then you go to, I mean, in Europe, we have to consider the European Medical Agency, EMA. But this is not the only thing or the the only stopping point that European countries may have from a regulatory point of view. Because there are some countries in Europe where a drug is automatically approved and reimbursed once it's approved by EMA. This is not the situation in Spain. So in Spain, there is a backlog of uh, several months or eventually uh, one year 
between an EMA approval of a given drug and having this drug being reimbursed by the indications that the EMA has approved. But once this happens, patients are able to receive treatment per label um, independently on the economical situation of the patient. So everything, it's not for free, but the system is public and uh, we are paying taxes for that. But the system is open. I would say that um, 100 patients, for instance, from 100 patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, these 100 patients could eventually receive brentuximab dotin that we have been discussing about it in the given indications. So here in the United States, for example, um, there is this issue often about accessibility, um, and which that means that companies or organizations may make a drug or, and it is accessible to people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can either afford it or be able to, ha- to get it simply because of the systems are different. Is it correct to understand that if people in Spain um, are being treated for this Hodgkin lymphoma, for example, uh, that uh, if the physicians, if the doctor deems it necessary for them to be treated with this particular drug, that is a given they have no problem in, in, in getting it? Exactly. Patients, I mean, if the patient has the indication for the drug and if the physician is prescribing it, then the patient has no problem at all to receive it. Another issue that um, is often being seen here in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world, is is the the, the, the issue of, of uh, disparities, meaning um, some people, whether it's racial disparities or whether it's uh, people that are um, on the low end economic scale, might not be able to benefit overall from um, medical treatment, might not have access to it, might not even be able to see a doctor. Um, is that something you see in Spain or is that something that you see far less because you have a system that actually allows people to get treated in, in a different way than maybe is done here? Uh, we don't see that too much in Spain precisely because the system is public. So independently on the uh, social level or economical level of the patient, the patient has access potentially to all these new treatments as long as they have been approved by the Spanish uh, medical agency. The only thing that may happen is that, of course, not all the patients go to the doctors as quickly uh, in the same way. So, And this is one thing that I have been able to find myself because I have been working in different institutions in Barcelona. So it's quite clear that if you work in an institution where the socioeconomical level of the patients is higher, usually these patients go earlier to the physician, so maybe even the clinical characteristics of the patients at the time of diagnosis may vary. But if you just forget about this, this thing or this situation, when the patient goes to the doctor, independently on the economical situation, the patient receives the same treatment. Okay. Um. Another thing that comes to mind is um, uh, things that changed here in the U.S. is, for example, the fact that patients are now um, have more to say in their treatment. Um, what that means, for example, is that in the past, um, doctors or academic centers or uh, pharmaceutical companies or, or government agencies, or they were involved in the development of clinical trials. 
But you see right now, for example, with the leukemia lymphomasis organizations here in the U.S., that they are actually, uh, as patient advocacy organizations, as patient organizations, are directly involved in the development of um, or collaboration with different partners in the development of clinical trials. Is that something that you also see uh, in Spain? Yeah, I think that the whole world is assisting to this change where patients and families are more proactive. First of all, in knowing exactly what is the type of disease they have. They want to know the different possibilities in terms of treatments, which are going to be the outcome. So they are really, I mean, many years ago, patients didn't ask anything. Uh, probably, um, I would say that uh, maybe Spain it's a little bit behind these all these uh, patients advocacy association than, for instance, what's happening in U.S. and maybe other European countries. Probably, uh, I have to say that uh, Northern Europe, this uh, has been going on for more years than in Spain. But we already have quite a lot of patients associate, uh, associations in Spain that collaborate with European associations. And this is one thing that we will be seeing more and more in the future. Um, and, and yet shifting gears a little bit again, I mean, when you look at, um, uh, again, in, in, in Spain, you have a more socialized system in medicine. Uh, but when you look at the quality of life that patients have, for example, when we're talking about brentuximab-fedotin, we're talking about Hodgkin lymphoma, we're talking about diseases that are not pleasant to deal with in the first place. But when you look at those targeted therapies, when you look at the, the I mean, how does that actually impact uh, the quality of life and how does that in turn impact the, the, the willingness for patients to say, okay, well, this may be a good option for me? Well, I think uh, one one thing that we cannot forget is that even with targeted therapy, we have um, negative side effects. So um, in an ideal world, um, the treatment that we have to use or that we can use for a patient should have not no side effects. So even targeted therapy... I think that brentuximabedotin is not an exception. We can go through all the different new drugs. And there is always a safety profile. And there are some side effects that are associated with with the treatment. So this is one thing that we have to take into consideration. And, of course, the quality of life is going to be very much impacted by the safety profile of the drug that the patient is receiving. Mm, Quality of life, of course... At some point, of course, you can evaluate it, and there are uh, really uh, official and clear-cut scales on how to evaluate quality of life. But sometimes quality of life can eventually be understood by the patient also in relation to the efficacy of the drug and the capacity of the drug or the treatment to ultimately cure the disease. So at some point... If you have a very effective treatment, there are patients that put quality of life at some point as a second endpoint if they really think that they are going to significantly benefit from the drug. Now, knowing a little bit about, uh, about Spain, uh, one of the things that um, you, you, is seen and, and that is sometimes strikingly different in other countries is a very tight uh, link between family members and um, the fact that if 
one family member is is being sick. Uh, the majority of other family members are basically surrounding the sick family member and taking good care of of of, of a family member. Uh, often that is different in other countries uh, where you have a system that takes care of of, of somebody where you see. Um, instead of family members surrounding a patient, you see nurses, you see doctors, you see other kind of people helping the patient. How does that impact? How does the fact that the, f- the family may be more involved in, in the treatment of patients or maybe more surrounding the patient, how does that, in your opinion, change the, the, the results in which uh, a patient may benefit from therapy or maybe even have a, a better outcome? I mean alluding to the psychosocial effects of, for example, treatment um, in addition to good medica- medicine? I think that you have touched in a very interesting and important point because I have experience of having worked for two years in UK, in Cambridge, and for me one of the most striking things I saw from a psychosocial point of view was the different role that family members had in UK in relation to Spain. As you have said, uh, when there is somebody in a family that has uh, cancer, hematological cancer or whatever, you have a huge or you normally have a huge family support that can never substitute, of course, the physician support, the nursing support. But I think that it gives a plus to the patient uh, just to have uh, not only the medical support, but also psychological support that probably it's not going to change the ultimate results of the treatment that it's being given, but probably the patient will be able to cope much better with a long-standing disease, such as the ones that we have been discussing, just because of all the family around. I think that this is, uh, this is a cultural issue, so probably the family support, for instance, is quite similar in Spain, Italy, Greece, more Mediterranean countries, if we talk about Europe, when you move to the northern countries, then the concept of the family is not um, exactly the same. So I had the feeling that patients, for instance, in UK, being admitted for long periods of time, as in Spain, uh, for the treatment of hematological malignancies, um, I mean, they were quite on their own. Of course, these being quite of their own, on their own, it was partially substituted by social workers, uh, nurses. So, of course, there is uh, a very good structure that up to some point can substitute a little bit this psychosocial support that eventually the family cannot give. I personally think that the family can give additional things um, in spite of the social support that the society can uh, can give to the patient, so so when you when you look at that, for example, um, when you look at a social worker or nursing assistants or or the like, um, obviously given by professionals, um, is there a difference in the end result when you look at professional help versus maybe? Uh, psychological support from family members is that really a difference or is is, is it an, an add-on bonus if you have the additional family support? I think it's uh, an added uh, bonus to what you can have from a professional support 
it's a little bit difficult to explain, but I don't think that uh, social worker nurses can fully replace the family. From my point of view, ideally, these should be complementary. I think that the healthcare system needs to have social workers and some support when the patient leaves the hospital or eventually in the hospital because um, things are getting more and more complicated. So the society has evolved um, quite a lot for the last, uh, not few years, but for the last years. Um, But I think that ideally uh, there should also be a support from the family that would be complementary to the support that the healthcare system can can give to the patient. Now we hear at... uh the 59th annual meeting of uh, the American Society of Hematology. Um, obviously, we've been talking about brentuximab fedotin, um, but I mean there are a lot of other kind of uh, exciting things going on here. Um, I was told by uh, some of the people around here that uh, this year uh, was um, uh, a year with the largest number of hematological new hematological drugs being approved by the uh, U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, which is, I think, the number 19, I think it was mentioned, um, uh, which is very exciting. I mean, I've heard that um, next year the expectation is that there are even more hematological drugs will be approved um, in the United States. Um, when you look at that, and you've been looking around here, you've been here now for a couple of days, uh, when you look out at, at, at um, the, the, the fast pace of development, what excites you about uh, this area, this field? Well, I am year after year more excited with hematology. I have been, um, let's say, a consultant in hematology for the last 25 years, and I have to say that in the last five years we have been assisting to a dramatic change in the treatment of our patients. You have mentioned additional drugs or additional advantage, uh, advances apart from brentuximab bedotin. I would like to highlight, for instance, uh, the, um, the landscape of multiple myeloma, which is a disease where the treatment has dramatically changed for the last uh, five years, I would say, with many new drugs being introduced, introduced not only in the setting of prospective clinical trials, but as you have said, being approved by the FDA and of course being also approved by the uh, European Medical Agency. This has made that the long-term outcome of multiple myeloma patients uh, has changed and eventually one can eventually consider multiple myeloma as a chronic disease, which is a concept that some years ago uh, that was completely impossible to think about it. And I also want to mention, for instance, all the immunotherapy strategies uh, with checkpoint inhibitors that were um, developed, as many other things, by the medical oncology field, but they are gaining more and more interest in uh, the setting of hematology and, of course, CAR T-cells that we have also heard a lot in this meeting. We have the first CAR T-cells already approved here by the FDA and hopefully uh, pretty soon in in Europe. And I think that all these treatment strategies that nowadays 
have just been approved and are being tested in the setting of prospective clinical trials. In the, ne in the next few years, they will be basically available outside prospective clinical trials for a significant proportion of patients that may need them. Now, you mentioned CAR T-cells. Um, that is, of course, a whole different way of treating a patient. Um, it's um, uh, really based on the person's own immune system. You take blood and, and actually rework them in, in the laboratory and then give them back to patients. Um, how does that approach, um, in your opinion, change the way we look at medicine? Because now we no longer are in an area where we talk about blockbuster drugs that are made in a factory or in a laboratory and given to a patient or patients in general um, in, in whoever needs the drug, um, which is basically the same drug for most patients, maybe in a different dose uh, level. Um, but this is really on the individual uh, immune system. How is that, in your opinion, changing the way we look at medicine? Well, I think that they are a kind of a proof of principle that we can treat diseases in a different way. So probably in the next few years, we will have different ways of treating hematological malignancies and also solid tumors. So this will be an add-on to what we already have and we already know to improve at the end of the day the, the outcome of our patients. So um, the advent of CAR T cells and probably new treatment strategies that will be coming in the near future, I mean, will even increase more and more the potential possibility of cure of patients that, at least for the time being, have failed more standard ways of being treated. Right. Now, last question I have. Um, with so much information as has been released here at uh, the annual uh, meeting of the American Society of Hematology, um, how difficult is it for you, your colleagues um, in general, uh, for physicians that may not be able to come to a meeting like this, how, how difficult is it to stay abreast and to, to, to really sink, have the information sink in and understand that and really use that um, for the benefit of patients? Um, again, there, there is a lot of information out there, but, but how do you do that? In a very difficult way because uh, the field is getting so and so complicated and complex that maybe some years ago you could consider yourself as an expert in the whole field. Nowadays, probably this is not possible anymore. This is not feasible and probably it's not intelligent just to try to be updated in every single thing. At the end of the day, you have to be specialized in a specific part of hematology. And of course, I think that uh, the amount of information we get from the American annual meeting every year is so important that when we go back home, we need to establish strategies to be able to have everybody educated. I think that there are quite well established. Uh, I mean, um, of course, um, uh, media and additional things apart from the classical books and uh, local meetings because, of course, this information needs um, uh, to be presented to other people and uh, every single professional has to be educated as much as possible, at least to know what's uh, which are the best treatment options for the patients and which are the new advances in the field. Another completely different thing is that if we are or we will be able 
to apply real time what we have learned at ASH in our patients. Because one thing is what we know from a scientific point of view, and then the other thing is the clinical reality in any single country where many of the combinations or the, or the treatments that have been presented here with excellent results, unfortunately, it will take a little bit of time to be able to use them outside uh, prospective clinical trials. Is there something in, in terms of, of sharing information um, and, and the educational part, what you do in your institute um, that benefits uh, your co-workers? Uh, is there something that you help in, 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 in sharing that information with one another? Uh, well, basically, what uh, in our institution that, of course, I mean, our department, it's not really a very big one. Um, we try to have people coming to us, and if not, we have additional sessions after the ASH, and we are sharing all the material that we have, I mean, to make this information available for everybody. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on December 11, 2017, during the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which took place December 9th through 12th, 2017, in Atlanta, Georgia. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. And we're happy to share with you some great news. Later this month, we will have a wider reach when iHeartRadio will also distribute our program. And in January 2018, the distribution will also include the United Kingdom, where the Oncozine Brief will be heard on UK Health Radio. And starting this month, the program is downloadable as a podcast. More information about that in our online journal Oncozine at oncozine.com. And we know that based on this interview with Dr. Sireda, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook or Twitter. And we'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo. And this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about